0: Today, we're taking a look at Mark chapter 2, and I have to say, this chapter has one of my most favorite passages in the entire New Testament. So I think we're going to just go ahead and jump right into the word and read it, and then we'll talk about it. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came. Bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus and, after digging through it, lowered the mat with the paralyzed man on it. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up, take your mat and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, Get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, he took his mat, and he walked out in full view of all of them. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, and if he does... The new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some of the heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, Why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? But he answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath." Now I have to say, backing up, one of my favorite passages in the entire New Testament is the beginning of chapter 2, when Jesus heals the paralytic who was lowered through the roof. Let's do some quick review of what's going on here <clears throat> in Judea and uh, Galilee, and you know this is the region of Capernaum, where Jesus is probably living now since he moved there from Nazareth. The houses of the area in this warm Mediterranean climate would be made of very modest materials, uh, mud, brick, maybe stone, not usually, wood, and then topped with what would essentially be logs um, or or, uh, wood boards and covered in mud and straw. And then these would be layered on top of each other. So these were not homes in the kind of sense that Americans would be used to today. They were very flimsy and very easy to kind of dig in and out, and that's what happened. The men who brought this paralytic were so sure that Jesus could heal their friend that they went to great lengths to get their friend in front of Jesus. And here's another reminder that we can see, even in just the second chapter of Mark, The ministry of Jesus is starting to really take off and people are hearing about what Jesus is saying and what he's doing and they're coming from all over to see him and to be healed. Now the thing I like the most about this passage is this. I think Jesus knew what was going to happen when the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, again, remember, when the the New Testament talks about teachers of the law, they're really talking about pharisaic jews who are very well acquainted not just with the bible the hebrew bible but all of the extra laws and rules that have kind of been tacked on to judaism over the past few hundred years and so they would be experts in understanding where people were following or breaking the law of course this is extreme extreme legalism and he knew that they were going to be there and i think he said to this man your sins are forgiven on purpose, because he wanted to provoke this response that then he could respond to. Now, just for clarity, this was also a period where there were a lot of charlatans, or so-called faith healers, who you would consider magicians for hire. This was an era, of course, of very poor health care, and um, most diseases, of course, uh, the, the root of them was unknown. It was not very clear what caused disease. And so, of course, uh, much of it was attributed to sin, right? During this period, if you got sick, they would look at you, the Jews would look at you, and say, well, you're sick because you're a bad person, and you've done something to wrong God, and he's punishing you. So these magicians would travel around the countryside, and for a fee, and often a very large fee, they would come up with a set of You know, um, so-called miracle cures and procedures, um, in order for you to heal your loved ones. Usually, they would tell you all of this, and there would be all of these expensive uh, things you would have to buy and prepare and treat with. They would be long gone before you realized that none of that worked. Well, Jesus wants to make it very clear here that he is not a traveling magician. He also wants to demonstrate his authority. Now, keep in mind too. For the Jews, there is only one being in this entire universe who can forgive your sin. That is, your error, or your unholiness, your rebellion against God. And that is God himself. So what does Jesus say here? Remember, this is not the first miracle we've seen where Jesus has healed somebody. Okay, He has, in our previous chapter, very directly Um, cast demons out of a man by saying, demons, come out of him. And he would go into the villages and he would preach and he would heal people. He would say, uh, be clean. and, And the people would be cured. But now, instead of healing them, he says this statement, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, what do the teachers of the law respond with? They're outraged. And he knew this was going to happen. And they say, Why does this fellow talk like that? He is blaspheming. Blasphemy means to basically say something evil against God, to pretend to be God, or to say something um, uh, about God that is untrue. Of course, a a very bad thing to do. They say, who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, here is where Jesus calls their bluff. He says this, why are you thinking these things? Because which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. Jesus calls their bluff because he says, it was easier for me to say, your sins are forgiven, than to say, get up and walk. And this is where he calls their bluff. He goes, fine, I'll call you out on it and raise you. (laughs) But to make sure you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He did it. And guess what happened? That paralyzed man stood up in front of all of these people, took his mat, and left. I'll tell you right now, even the text itself says they were amazed. This amazed not just some of them. The text says everyone was amazed, and they had to have been. Because it was easier for Jesus to just make an off-the-cuff comment that had nothing behind it. Oh, sure, your sins are forgiven. But he didn't. He ended up doing exactly what he could do, and he healed the man. What an awesome story it is. And again, getting back to why does Jesus perform miracles? All three of them are on display here. One is to demonstrate the authority and power of God. The second is to show glory to God, and show his power over the natural universe. And the third is, quite frankly, to have compassion on human beings. Jesus' miracles almost always involve helping human beings, saving them, protecting them, healing them, and restoring them. And that's what happens here. Then we move on. The calling of Levi. And here again, he continues to call disciples. Now, I want you to think back to chapter 1, where Jesus called the first disciples. Remember, this was James and John. uh, This was Peter and Andrew. And think about this for a minute. If you were a teacher, rabbi, in the first century, and you were a Jew, you would tend to surround yourself with some really good people. Why? Because your disciples made you look better. The kinds of disciples you recruited said a lot about the kind of teacher and the kind of holy person that you were as a rabbi. Now, we don't know for sure what kind of uh, uh, practicing Jews uh, Peter and and Andrew and James and John were. Um, It doesn't really allude to that in the first chapter, but we can tell you right now who Levi was. In this period, the tax collecting was very different than it is in our modern Western world. Back then, the way that the taxes worked was kind of a franchise approach. People would approach the government, in this case the Roman Empire, and say, I want to bid to collect taxes in a given region and I am going to pledge to gather X number of taxes. So let's just make a number up. Let's just say that uh, this man, Levi, is claiming that he will uh, collect taxes and maybe because of his uh, position near the sea, there might be tariffs uh, p- potentially on the produce and fish coming out of the Sea of Galilee and the, and the farming communities around there. So he's going to bid on that. And let's say that he says, I am going to collect what in today's uh, money would be $10 million. Well, the way this works, and it's quite a system that engenders in, in corruption is, uh, typically, the person who bid the highest amount got the job. So let's say someone came to the Roman governor of the region and say, I'm going to collect $5 million. And Levi came and said, I'm going to collect $10 million. Okay, you got the job. Well, here's the catch. <laughs> you had to deliver the money that you claimed you would get. So, in a way, the tax collector is on the hook now for giving the whole $10 It wasn't anything about the fairness of today, or you could perceive fairness of saying you make X amount of money, so you're going to pay this percentage. The way it worked was the tax collectors then went out into the region and they strong-armed all of the citizens and and people uh, who were passing through there to give them money. And at the end of that tax period, they better have $10 million to give to the Roman governor. Well, Typically, what would happen was the tax collector would gather as much as they could by strong arming, by threatening, um, by uh, blackmailing, and almost always they would collect less than the amount they had uh, uh, pledged for Rome. Um, So, in this case, it would be they would collect the $10 million, but they would collect more than that. So, Levi could go out if he wanted to even though he had pledged 10 million to Rome, he could go out and collect 20 million if he wanted to, and he got to keep all of the extra. This was the corruption that was endemic in the region, and it made life miserable, and it made the tax collectors rich. The other thing it did was make the tax collectors of the period outcasts. Think again that the Jews of this period are a very exclusionary culture They have a lot of rules about who orthodox or what you would call good Jews could do or not do. Well, one of them was not to associate with tax collectors because they were almost always corrupt. Another thing that they did was not eat with certain types of people. They were absolutely forbidden to eat with a Gentile, that is a person who is not a Jew. But anyone in their culture who was a Jew who was considered undesirable, and this could be... um, criminals, certainly those uh, who had certain diseases like leprosy, um, people who engaged in certain unethical practices, they would have a long list of people that the so-called quote good people in the community could not associate with. And you could not eat with them. The Jews put a big deal on who you could sit down and have a meal with. And so this was a very big deal. Now let's get back to what's happening with Levi. So here we have a Jewish teacher, a rabbi, who is now calling a sinner, in a blatant outcast of the Jewish culture to be his disciple. Still a Jew. Still a Jew. He has a Jewish name. We, we have no reason to believe he's not a Jew, but he's an outcast. And not just becoming a disciple, he goes and eats with him. And the other thing he does is he invites his friends to come with him. And you can imagine If you are an outcast in a society, who do you tend to associate with? Other outcasts. So you can imagine, this might be a room full of um, criminals, prostitutes, uh, certainly uh, other tax collectors. There could have even been Gentiles there. Once again, Jesus is making a point because some people notice this and they get all upset about it. Again, the kind of The the lawful um, folks who are are very much focused on the law of of Judaism get all bent out of shape about this, and Jesus confronts them on it. Now, the next thing that happens here is this question about fasting. And again, it has to be emphasized that in the Jewish culture, fasting was very important, and it is an important aspect of um, our communication with God. Prayer and fasting continues to come up repeatedly in the Old and New Testaments, but it comes up as a way to purify your heart. And we'll talk more about this in future podcasts, but fasting is an important part of kind of clearing your mind, um, uh, focusing and purifying your thoughts, and devoting them to God. But what is happening in this culture? Here, fasting is becoming a badge of honor. If I fast publicly, and I do it in front of a lot of people, then I'm going to get a lot of righteousness points with my community, and I'll be seen as more holy than maybe other people who are not fasting. Jesus caught on to this very quickly, and he again wanted to make a very important point. His point here is this. You law people are not following fasting because your heart is good. You're following it because you want to appear righteous, and that's Your heart is not in the right place there. And the same is true today. So Jesus makes this great analogy about how the guests of the bridegroom fast when he's not around. And and again, it should be noted that there is a reference to uh, God being the bridegroom uh, or the Lord being the bridegroom in the Old Testament, both in Isaiah and and, uh, Hosea. So he is making a very clear reference here uh, to his divinity once again. And then finally, we have this passage about his disciples passing through the green fields. Again, this is not an uncommon practice of the time. Uh, today, you might consider this trespassing, theft, and what have you. Um, remember, in this period in um, uh, in Judaism and in, in this region of the world, this was actually lawful. This was actually uh, allowed. And in fact, it was required that farmers were supposed to lot part of their fields for the poor to be able to come into them and collect the grain that had either fallen or that was ripe and hadn't been harvested so this was totally allowed however the Pharisees of the period decided to tack on even additional laws and I think here they're trying to catch him I think at this point they're they're fed up with him and they're trying to catch him you know in these in these loopholes and stuff like that they're saying well even though you're allowed to collect the grain that's set aside for you know poor people, and these would certainly be poor people as disciples, you technically did it on our Sabbath, so that is violating the Sabbath. Well, I can tell you right now, that is not prohibited in the Old Testament canon. This was extra additional laws tacked on for them to basically control their society and catch people. And Jesus responds... Of course, with this classic catching them, okay, you think you're a teacher of the law. Well, I'm going to teach you about the law. You don't even know about the canon of David doing this very thing, basically because God wanted him to when he was hungry. And making the beautiful point, look, (laughs) the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You could insert there the law, the law of Moses, was made for man, not man for the law of Moses. It's the same thing. And then he follows that up again with a claim of divinity. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And maybe to make one final comment here about this unshrunk cloth and the wine, there's a very good reason this is, this is in here right now. In the period... When wine was produced, again, remember, wine was was uh, commonly drunk by everyone in this community because it was something you could drink that generally did not have uh, pathogens in it that could make you sick. The alcohol tended to sterilize the wine or at least knock down a lot of the bacteria and, and fungi and viruses that might, uh, might make you very sick or kill you. So wine was universally drunk uh, by people in this culture. How wine was made was a little different. The fermentation process of making the wine uh, would start, and you can uh, think about your science class here in order to produce wine, grapes are mashed. the sugar uh, in the absence of oxygen um, is combined with yeast who then consume the sugar and because there's no oxygen, they produce ethyl alcohol. and that's the thing that um, is the inebriation uh, component of, of alcohol of wine and beer. Well, as this process of wine takes place, of making the wine, carbon dioxide is produced. A lot of gas, a lot of carbon dioxide gas is produced by the yeast. Well, when someone were to be making this wine, they would put it into these leather or vellum uh, pouches um, and they would seal them because this was a great way to seal off the air and the oxygen and they could, they could essentially uh, make their alcohol. Well, in the process, that would greatly expand, because of all of these carbon dioxide gases, uh, the pouch that the wine was sitting in and fermenting in and becoming wine. Here's the the point that Jesus is making to an audience that would understand what he meant. That if that pouch had been used before and had already gone through this process of being filled with grape juice, sealed, creating wine and carbon dioxide and, and the pouch swelling and stretching, you could only do that once. Why? Because once the wine is made and you poured out the wine and you drank it, you threw that thing away or used it for other things, you never used it for wine again because the pouch had been stretched out already. If you tried to put new grape juice in that old wine pouch, sealed it up with the yeast and let it go, it would explode like a bomb because it had already been stretched as far as it could be stretched. And all of the patches and, and, and uh, sewing that you tried to do to hold it together would never work. It would burst apart. Here is the point of this analogy. Jesus is trying to tell his followers, I, Jesus, am not bringing another patch to be placed like all of your additional laws and regulations on top of the old. This is a brand new gospel. The gospel of salvation that I am bringing to you is a fresh start. Fresh start for you, fresh start for me, fresh start for everyone. And if you try and stick my gospel back onto all of the layers of laws and and religious practices and cultural practices that you've been following, it's gonna explode on you. It's not gonna work for anyone. So he makes this beautiful point start over. We're starting over here. And while everything that had come before in the Old Testament was still relevant, the new disciples of Jesus were able to follow a brand new path. Thanks for joining us this week. Next time, we're going to talk about Mark chapter 3.